Welcome to DAC Beechcroft's Lawcast. My name is Victoria Armstrong. I'm a partner in the real estate team here at DACB, specialising in health. This is the latest edition in our Lawcast series, and today we're talking about estate code and lease heads of terms. I'm joined by Lisa Geary, a partner in our real estate team who also specialises in health, and we'll be talking about some key themes that are crucial to think about when dealing with NHS leasehold estate. I've been asked by several estate managers recently for a reminder of the starting point in looking at heads of terms for leases where a trust is entering into a lease arrangement as tenant. And I think this has arisen more recently because of a number of factors, including the ongoing drive to regularise occupation of community properties, particularly where there's no current lease arrangement in place or where the existing arrangement has, has expired the general need to take a lease in conjunction with a renewal of a service contract or winning a new service contract, and also taking a lease of new sites, perhaps, for example, a community diagnostic centre or maybe occupation of a new health hub. And it's never a bad idea to dust down the basics of estate code to ensure that you try to negotiate the best deal as tenant and also to ensure that estate code is properly considered we'd recommend that any de deviation from a state code is properly documented for audit purposes. Thanks, Victoria. And absolutely, I couldn't agree more. I know you and I have chatted about how our clients are always conscious that if as many points can be covered at the heads of term stage while the deal is being done, that makes for a smoother transaction and also helps to reduce legal costs and keep finance directors happy. It really helps to ensure that everyone involved in negotiating heads of terms on behalf of NHS Trust as tenant is aware of specific estate code provisions and generally any other governance or financial constraints imposed on NHS Trust as tenants. And this includes agents, estates managers, surveyors, and of course their lawyers. Running the draft terms past your legal advisor before they are confirmed as approved usually pays dividends, so any changes are flagged ahead of the deal being done. So let's remind ourselves of what a state code is before we start talking about specific terms. Lisa, can you tell us more, including whether a state code is mandatory? I often get asked what will happen if I don't or can't follow a state code. And also, do you find that many landlords are aware of it? This is a really good question. The current guidance is, is actually called HBN 00-08, the Efficient Management of Healthcare Estates and Facilities, and was published in November 2013. So it's now just about 10 years old. And it replaced the old Core Elements Health Building Note 00-08, which was called Estate Code. But the name has stuck, and therefore, um, colloquially, the current version is still referred to under this name. It's not actually legislation or statutory regulation in its own right, but guidance on best practice for NHS trusts, foundation trusts and other organisations on how to achieve savings and reduce costs in managing their estate, whether that's leasing, acquiring or disposing. However, some recommendations have become so established as best practice that certainly from the NHS trust perspective, there will need to be a good reason to deviate. Overall, the important point is that if guidance cannot be followed or should not be followed to achieve the best outcome for use of the estate, 
then the rationale for this should be documented and form part of a clear audit trail for governance purposes. I always recommend to my clients that a copy is to hand or in the corner of a desk of everyone who deals with or advises on NHS property transactions. Thanks, Lisa. I particularly like that tip that everybody should have a copy of it on their desk. I've got mine next to me. Um, you could maybe mark it as a favourite in your toolbar. Um, but also that they remember to mention this to any agent or other party negotiating lease terms on their behalf. As you say, audit trail really is the key to ensure proper process and governance is as it should be. So on to the detail of the heads of terms. This podcast will focus on certain key provisions which we consider important to get right. Firstly, the extent of the property. Secondly, how long you need the property for and any flexibility that may be required, the length of term, security of tenure, any break rights. Thirdly, repairing obligations, rent and service charge, all things financial. And finally, your rights to transfer the lease, sublet or share occupation. So it sounds really obvious, but what problems, Lisa, crop up if the property description is not detailed enough at the outset? Yes, it, it, it can cause quite a lot of problems. And I think very often what happens in the excitement of getting the deal done, um, people want to launch straight into actually getting the lease finalised. And it's very easy to overlook actually really scrutinising the extent of the property and making sure that you've got the proper description and you've got a clear set of plans. If you think about it, a, a lease splits out responsibilities between a landlord and tenant in respect of a definition of the property. So the description needs to be very accurate and a clear plan used to show a red line of the area, which is the property and where it's a lease of part, perhaps any common parts and areas over which the tenant will have rights, for example, access, car parking. It may be necessary to have floor plans or a building plan and an estate plan where it's a lease of part or a lease of a unit on a wider estate. For an internal demise, like a floor of a building, the description will need to list the internal non-structural parts included and the structural parts which are excluded from the lease. And then more, a little bit more technical, but still important, where the lease is for more than seven years or grants easements over other land, it will require a land registry compliant plan to ensure it will be registered or the easements will be registered and therefore legally enforceable. It really helps if this can be provided by an internal CAD team or an agent at the outset to prevent um, additional delay as and when the lease is ready to be issued and signed. It really is another aspect which can be overlooked when a deal is done and, and does cause additional costs when it comes to issuing the final document to sign. And it is important to ensure the plan is correct to avoid issues with land registry registration further down the line. And I know you've had some recent successful negotiations around ensuring the length of occupation is properly considered and thought given to any flexibility that may be required. Can you tell us about this? Yes. So length of term, um, it's again, it's a really key point to to give full consideration to. 
A state code recommends a starting point of no more than five years for a lease granted to an NHS tenant. But of course, there may be reasons why a longer lease is needed. If that is the case, it needs careful consideration and valuation advice. If, as often is the case, an NHS trust will be entering into a lease linked to a service contract, then think about limiting the term to the maximum length of the contract, including extension periods and termination rights in the event the service contract ends or is not renewed any earlier. If possible, as a tenant, it is a bonus if a lease um, is granted so as to give you as tenant security of tenure rights under the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954. But with shorter leases, this is often not negotiable or commercially acceptable. If not, then think about having an option to renew. The 1954 Act is a really important piece of legislation, and we will be covering this in more detail in another podcast in this series. If as a tenant you require flexibility to be able to end your lease earlier, then take advice on suitable break rights. These could be fixed date break rights, for example, a right to end the lease on, say, the third anniversary of the term or within a period after a rent review on an agreed period of notice, or perhaps a rolling break right, for example, any time after X date on X month's notice. As a minimum, if the occupation is linked to a service contract, a right to end the lease at the same time the contract ends should definitely be included. A word of warning, however, think carefully about what you really need rather than what might be a more speculative nice to have. As a favourable, an overly favourable tenant break right can, can inflate the rent. Yes, and as you say, Lisa, a state code states that leases over five years should be avoided, but there are often good reasons behind a longer term lease, for instance, to tie in with the term of a service contract or where certainty is needed around service delivery. Um, and you mentioned valuation. Whilst we won't talk to rental value here, the length of term will also directly feed into rental value and the rent review provisions. So coming on to rent and rent review, Estate code isn't as prescriptive here, is it, as it is in relation to other provisions. It states that upwards only rent reviews should be avoided and that they shouldn't occur any more frequently than every five years. But that doesn't always reflect what is achievable in the commercial market, does it? That's a really good point. It doesn't always reflect what is achievable in the commercial market. And what I say to clients is that a sensible approach is needed when looking at rent and rent review provisions, especially now when trusts are looking at taking leases of commercial units from which to deliver healthcare as part of health on the high street or diagnostic centres based in, for example, retail parks. It's important to gain valuation advice on the rent which is agreed and the effect of any other provisions of the lease on this. It's still unusual to be able to negotiate either way rent reviews, but it will depend on the property and negotiating positions. So take advice on whether that is something that you should fight for. Be realistic that with some properties where the landlord has a funder or is an investor, the rent reviews will need to be upwards only. 
usually open market rent reviews are every three to five years. So with shorter term leases, regular open market rent reviews may not be relevant. But the landlord may suggest annual reviews linked to the RPI, the retail price index, or CPI, the consumer price index, or even fixed stepped rent increases every year. Always consider rent-free periods where you are undertaking works before you can occupy. And for shorter term leases, all-inclusive rents to include service charge and other operational costs where possible and give more cost certainty. Check to see if VAT is payable on rent and take financial advice on whether it can be recovered. I never cease to be amazed to see heads of terms referencing a rent deposit to be paid by an NHS trust as tenant. And this should definitely be resisted as the covenant strength of an NHS trust is very strong. In summary, ensure you have valuation advice and be sensible about how commercial reality may require some deviation from estate code guidance. And if that is the case, then document the thought process around this so that there is a very clear audit trail. And another expense is service charge. There's been a lot in the press recently, given the recent BMA case on what should and should not be included in a service charge calculation, and also what a tenant's rights are generally in relation to that. DACB has produced um, an interesting update article on this recently, actually, which I would recommend everyone catch up on. But what are your top tips for a tenant on this aspect of any lease arrangement? My top tip is to ensure you really scrutinise this part of the heads of terms, which very often can be quite loosely put together or list of services yet to be confirmed. And, and therefore, that can lead to additional negotiation when it comes to actually agreeing the form of lease. Think carefully about what services you need and are prepared to pay for. Service charges are relevant where you occupy part of the property owned by the landlord and the landlord agrees to provide services which benefit you as tenant. And these could be a range of services. They could be hard FM, hard facilities management relating to the repair, for example, of the exterior and structure of the building, which you occupy part of, or you may have an internal lease of whole, or soft FM services like security, cleaning of common areas, landscaping, or both hard and soft FM. The key focus should be careful definition of the services you need the landlord to provide, and then those that you are willing to pay for. Think carefully about what you require to be excluded from a service charge, particularly where it's a short-term lease where you certainly won't want to be paying for repair of major items of plant or structure, for example, roof repair or repairs and replacement of boilers or lifts. Another important point is the calculation of costs. It's important that it, it, it's demonstrated that that will be a, a clear and a, a fair and reasonable proportion, perhaps a fixed percentage in accordance with floor area occupancy and a very transparent cost disclosure process. Always hold very clearly in your mind the word service charge cap and see whether or not 
a cap on costs can be negotiated and where possible try to avoid sinking funds, especially where it's a short term lease and you need to limit your exposure for picking up those longer term capital costs. And that brings us nicely on to repair generally. Who does what and who pays for what? This is a really important part of a lease negotiation. The length of term and the extent of the property being let will drive this one. A very short term lease, for example, 12 months, should only require a tenant to keep the property clean and tidy and make good damage it causes. A longer term lease is likely to require a more enhanced repairing obligation, for example, to keep the property in good repairing condition. Tenants should absolutely avoid being required to put the property into good repairing condition, as this could be onerous and involve improving an landlord's property at the tenant's expense. A schedule of condition is recommended to document the condition at the outset and act as a clear benchmark so that a tenant cannot be required to put the property into any better condition than shown by the schedule, which could be a simple set of photographs collated by the landlord and approved by the tenant, or it could be a full-blown schedule of condition put together by a surveyor. The greater the extent of the property, for example, a lease of whole, then the more important the impact of an onerous repairing liability will be. If you are taking a lease of a new property where the structure of the property is being let to you, then do take advice on the availability of warranties or think about excluding liability for defects in design or workmanship where warranties aren't available. How the repairing obligation is documented will affect your dilapidation liabilities at the end of the lease. And this is such an important topic that it will have its own episode as part of this podcast series. Yeah, we could talk about this for quite a lot longer. But before we go today, we've got time to mention what is often headed alienation. Quite simply, that means disposal of a leasehold interest in property, including assignment, underletting, charging an interest, sharing possession or occupation. Why is this one so important to get right? And is there anything specific to NHS trusts which some landlords may not have considered when putting the deal together? Thanks, Victoria. This is a really good question to end on. It's really important to think about what you may need to do with the space you're leasing and who else may need to occupy it as part of the service you are providing, delivering. It may also be the case, especially with longer leases, that the property or part of it will no longer be required by the trust within the lease term because needs have changed. And so you may need to transfer the lease or sublet part or hold to a third party, either for the rest of the term or a shorter period. In terms of transferring the lease, um, which is known as an assignment, you should clear, you should ensure that you have the right to do this unless, for example, the lease is for a short period and it's clear that you will need it for the whole period. It is usually the case that this right is conditional on landlord's consent, but do try to negotiate a provision to state that landlord's consent isn't required where you are transferring to another NHS body. Another key NHS specific point, and one which many landlords don't appreciate, 
is that NHS trusts are advised not to provide any form of guarantee, either as an outgoing tenant for the incoming tenant, what's known in the trade as an authorised guarantee agreement, or if they are taking a lease as incoming tenant. This should definitely be flagged at heads of term stage. If it isn't, it can lead to protracted negotiation and delay and increase costs as part of the lease negotiation. The extent of any necessary subletting rights will very often be driven by the configuration of the property and whether the landlord is happy to have a chain of occupations. Where it may be necessary during the lease term for third parties to occupy areas exclusively, for example, subcontracted service providers, then subletting rights will be really important. Sharing of occupation rights should be included to facilitate sessional arrangements, which are very common in areas occupied, occupied and run by NHS trusts for those ancillary service providers who need to come in and provide those additional services. And you want to ensure that those sorts of arrangements don't require landlords' consent. Your lawyers will, of course, ensure that any financial tests imposed on any subtenant or assignee do not state they have to have the same financial strength as an NHS trust. That is hard to match and may render the rights to transfer or sublet unworkable. And finally, remember to think sensibly about what you actually need, as the more flexible the provisions are for a tenant to transfer the lease or sublet, the more likely the rent will be inflated. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for, for outlining all of that. It serves as a really useful reminder about those considerations which affect all levels of transactions and I think can often get lost during detailed negotiations. On that note, all that is left is for me to say thanks to everybody listening. If anyone is interested in hearing more from our podcasts, please head over to www.dacbeachcroft.com forward slash lawcast. Thanks very much, Lisa, for your input here. Thanks, Victoria.